Tired of the old spins? Welcome to the Anders of John Show, your refuge from mainstream media spin. Here we dissect fake news and expose the real stories. Don't just listen, engage. Sign up for our newsletter right now. Click the link in the description. Together we can change the way we consume news, challenge the narrative, and seek the truth. The Anders of John Show, because the truth matters. Now let's get into today's topic. Willing to push it at any time that it is required to be pushed. And he said, our doctrine clearly states that if somebody carries out operations that represent an existential threat to Russia, we will use nuclear weapons. And you need to understand there will be no hesitancy, no warning, no discussion, no debate. We will use them. So anybody who sits there says, well, let, let Ukraine do this. Why not? It's a suicide pill. And when, when, remember, when Russia uses nuclear weapons, it begins what will always end up as a general nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia, and we will all die. Well, I want to jump right into this. Um, you, you probably know about this, but new leaked documents this week coming out of Ukraine show Ukraine's generals had planned a middle-of-the-night attack on Moscow to seek revenge on Russia on the one-year anniversary of them invading Ukraine. It took, from what I'm reading, it took several people at the CIA, the State Department, and possibly even the White House going back and forth trying to convince them that this is going to end in nuclear retaliation or World War III. Um, Were you aware of this attack? And what do you think would have been the outcome if Ukraine had launched this attack on Moscow unbeknownst to NATO? Well, I wasn't aware of the specifics of the attack until the information came out. I can say that monitoring um, a variety of Ukrainian uh, telegram channels and things of that nature, that there had been talk about something like this. Uh, And um, I think it's important for people to understand, for people listening to understand that while we talk about a war in Ukraine, this isn't a war. If it was a war, this this battle, this conflict would be over already. Russia's not at war with Ukraine. Russia is seeking a solution that keeps Ukraine from becoming NATO. <laughs> war means the destruction of a nation. War means the total defeat of a people. Um, and so I think what the United States and, and those who intervened were trying to tell the Ukrainians is, if you attack Moscow, there's going to be a war and all of you are going to die. I just want to point that fact out. If this was a war, Zelensky would not be alive today. He would have been killed in week one, week two. If this was a war, Kiev would not exist as it currently exists with a functioning government uh, infrastructure, uh, things of that nature. Just ask the Iraqis what happened when we went to war against them. The first places we bombed were presidential palaces, uh, parliament, uh, you know, the, the functions of government. Leaders became a command and control target, and we hunted them down. Saddam Hussein lived because every day he moved between different targets, uh, different places. Um, we were one step behind him. Um, but I could personally attest, we were trying to kill him. I tried to kill him. One of my missions during the war was to kill Saddam. Um, the Russians are not trying to kill Zelensky. They're letting him live. They're letting the Ukrainian government function because their goal is not the destruction of Ukraine. 
if the Ukrainians carried out this attack, and look, there's others that they're talking about. Right now, they're talking about sending drones to attack the Victory Day Parade on March 9th. If they do this, they will die, literally, because Russia's not at war. But if you attack Moscow in the middle of the night on the, on the first year anniversary or on May 9th during the Victory Day Parade, that is an act of war. And Russia will respond in the same. They may not use nuclear weapons. In fact, they won't use nuclear weapons against Kiev, but they will take Kiev off the grid. It will no longer exist. And then NATO may get involved, and now we have a nuclear war. So I think that's why you know the United States came in and, uh, and, and, and did what they did, because the United States, with all the rhetoric that we have here, we, we understand that Russia is not putting everything uh, on the line here, that this is still very much a limited military operation for Russia, uh, that Russia's goal and objective is not the destruction of the Ukrainian state. If it was, this war would be over. Um, the, pro- the, the other problem for the United States is how do you, how do you build up a country like we did with Ukraine, uh, elevate Zelensky to be the modern day version of Winston Churchill? You know, I will fight them on the beaches. I will fight them in the shores. I will fight them. And then tell them, well, you can't. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. You're, we're going to pretend you're Winston Churchill, but you can't be Winston Churchill because if you do that, you're you're going to die. And now Zelensky's looking reality in the face. Ukraine has lost the war, and everybody knows it. Um, and so Zelensky's desperate, desperate for something that can change the algorithm, change the equation. And uh, I think there's a lot of people surrounding him say that the best way we can survive is to bring NATO into the conflict. And the easiest way to bring NATO into the conflict is to go to war against Russia. Mm, so, okay. yeah, but I think I'll leave it with this. Dmitry Medvedev, a former uh, Russian president, gave a speech yesterday. Um, and I hope every American watches that speech. Because there's a lot of talk in the United States about the Russians bluffing. You hear it on the media all the time. Oh, Russia's bluffing about nuclear weapons. They're shaking the nuclear saber, uh, but they're never going to do it. Russia would never do that. And Medvedev said straight up, he said, look, I'm a former president. I will tell you right now that um, Russia is a nuclear armed nation and the Russian president, and I was this way, must have a steady hand over the nuclear button, willing to push it at any time that it was required to be pushed. And he said, our doctrine clearly states that if somebody carries out operations that represent an existential threat to Russia, we will use nuclear weapons. And you need to understand there will be no hesitancy, no warning, no discussion, no debate. We will use them. So anybody who sits there says, well, let let Ukraine do this. Why not? It's a suicide pill. And when, when, remember, when Russia uses nuclear weapons, it begins what will always end up as a general nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia, and we will all die. So that's why the United States intervenes so hard, because I don't think anybody in the United States in a position of power wants to swallow the Ukrainian suicide pill. And that's what allowed Ukraine to attack Moscow would 
So I think that, you know, we need to understand that these different roles, these different personas, they serve different purposes within the Russian government and within Russian society. And it's important not to get too caught up in the rhetoric and to really focus on the actions and the strategies that are being played out on the world stage. But, you know, it's interesting when we look at this situation with Ukraine and the potential attack on Moscow, it really does show the complexities and the dangers that exist in our world today. And it's a reminder that we need to be very careful with the choices that we make, the alliances that we form, and the actions that we take. And as we continue to navigate this complex global landscape, it's important for us, for all of us, to stay informed, to engage in meaningful conversations, and to really understand the different perspectives and the different motivations that are driving the various actors on the world stage. Because ultimately, it's only through understanding, dialogue, and a commitment to finding common ground and peaceful solutions that we can hope to avoid the kind of catastrophic consequences that could result from a conflict like the one that was narrowly averted between Ukraine and Russia. So, as we move forward, let's remember the importance of keeping our eyes and our minds open, of staying informed, and of working together to build a better, safer, and more peaceful world for all of us. As we continue to delve into these complex geopolitical situations, it's essential for us to recognize that the world is changing rapidly. The balance of power is shifting, new technologies are emerging, and old rivalries are being rekindled. It's more important than ever for us to be proactive, to engage in dialogue and diplomacy, and to avoid the kind of brinkmanship that could lead to devastating consequences. In the case of Ukraine and Russia, we must keep in mind the human cost of war and the long-lasting impact it can have on societies and nations. The conflict has already taken a tremendous toll on the people of Ukraine, and any further escalation would only result in more suffering and devastation. As responsible global citizens, we should strive to promote peace, understanding, and cooperation among nations. This involves supporting diplomatic efforts, investing in conflict prevention, and working together to address the root causes of tensions and hostilities. We must remain vigilant and committed to these ideas to prevent conflicts from escalating and to build a more just and peaceful world. Let's also not forget the importance of fostering empathy and understanding among different cultures and societies. We need to break down the barriers that divide us, embrace our shared humanity, and work together to address the many challenges we face, from climate change to poverty and inequality. In conclusion, the situation between Ukraine and Russia serves as a stark reminder of the fragility of peace and the importance of diplomacy and restraint. By staying informed, engaging in open dialogue, and working together, we can help to build a safer, more peaceful world for everyone. Let's commit ourselves to this goal and strive to make a positive difference in the world, one step at a time. It's all too obvious we, we truly live in a very dangerous time where we are speaking about our country going to war. And, um, you know, you, you've outlined some, some extremely important issues that need to be addressed. Let me start off by explaining where I'm coming from as I talk about this. If you check out my resume, you aren't going to find nuclear physicist, biologist, chemist, or rocket scientist anywhere in that resume. So I seem to be the most unlikely of people to sit here and talk to you today about the technologies of weapons of mass destruction. What you will find is intelligence officer, operator, leader, marine. That's my perspective. My perspective was going into Iraq and doing a task. Viewed myself as someone sort of like a beat cop out there on the street, implementing, enforcing the law. And, and this is an important concept because I think it's going to underscore everything I'm going to talk about tonight and how I answer every one of your questions that you put forward. Law. Law. Why do we do what we do? Why was I in Iraq to begin with? 
because the Security Council passed a resolution saying Iraq can't have weapons of mass destruction. That's why. Now, what gives the Security Council the authority to pass that resolution? The United Nations Charter, of which the United States of America is a signatory. And what makes the United Nations Charter so important to us as Americans? Because it's an agreement that we've entered to as a nation, and our Constitution says that when we enter in, into an international agreements and the treaties, those agreements carry the force of law here in America. So I'm coming down to the basic issue here that underscores everything I'm going to talk about, the Constitution of the United States of America. And it has to play a role in everything we discuss vis-a-vis -vis Iraq. Vis-a-vis -vis Iraq. Now, in 1998, what was the situation? The situation was the international community said Iraq must be disarmed to 100%, that they can have no chemical, biological, nuclear, or long-range ballistic missiles. Now, by 1998, we had achieved a very advanced degree of disarmament. These aren't my words. These are the words of Rolf Akadis, the Swedish diplomat who ran the program from 1991 to 1997. He says that by 1996, Iraq had been fundamentally disarmed that we had accounted for 95% of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs. And this included all of the factories that were used to produce weapons of mass destruction, all the associated production equipment, and the vast majority of the product produced. But the law says 100%. Therefore, fundamental disarmament isn't enough, according to the law. It says 100%, and we have to force that issue. We have to find the unaccounted for material. And that's what I and other inspectors were seeking to do, find out the final disposition of the unaccounted for material. What was unaccounted for? No weapons factories were unaccounted for, not that we knew of. I mean, you can always throw out the hypothetical of, well, Scott, you say you got them all, but what about the ones you don't know of? That's an important factor. I say we got all the production equipment. Well, Scott, wait a minute. What about the production equipment you didn't know about? That's a good issue. That's a good point. And I say that we accounted for most of the product produced by these factories, but I just acknowledge it could be factories and production equipment that we didn't know about. So what about the product they produced that you don't know about? Good point. All the good points. Now we come to one of the issues to talk about. How good are inspections? How good are the inspections? Especially when you are confronted with the situation that we ran into in Iraq, where the Iraqis made a decision from the very beginning to lie about their weapons capabilities, to fail to declare entire nuclear programs, biological programs, underdeclare their chemical programs, underdeclare their ballistic missile programs. It made the task of disarming Iraq already a difficult task from just a basic scientific and technical perspective, extremely difficult because now we had to go into a nation which was not cooperative, in which was we had to conduct operations in a hostile environment. And again, this would seem to degrade confidence in what we were able to achieve. But as I told you, I'm not a physicist, a biologist, chemist, rocket scientist. I'm an intelligence officer. I'm a Marine. I love challenges like that, and I'll tell you what, all the inspectors that work for the Special Commission, we love challenges like that too. Our job was to implement the law, to hold Iraq fully accountable to the rule of law as set forth by the Security Council. And that meant that we were going to find out what these capabilities were, regardless of Iraq's obstruction. And we prosecuted the case in that manner. Now, I need to say right up front that myself and the other inspectors prosecuted the case against Iraq not only in terms of holding Iraq accountable to the law, but ensuring that we ourselves did not deviate from the rule of law in doing our job. I should underscore from the very start that our mission in Iraq revolved around disarming Iraq's chemical, biological, nuclear, and long-range ballistic missile capabilities. That's what the law said, Resolution 687. The law also said that economic sanctions imposed on Iraq in August 1990 when they invaded Kuwait and continued 
through Resolution 687 in April 1991 were linked to, the lifting of which were linked to Iraq's compliance with its obligation to disarm. That if Iraq was found to be in compliance, these sanctions would be lifted. That's the law. You will not find any law in terms of a Security Council resolution that talks about regime removal. You simply will not. Furthermore, you will find that the concept of regime removal is in itself a violation of international law as set forth by the United Nations Charter, which clearly states that no nation has the right to pick the leadership of a sovereign state. That is the sole prerogative of that nation. Regime removal is not part of these resolutions. And yet from the very beginning, as this beat cop out there doing my job and trying to hold Iraq accountable for the law, our process of investigation was corrupted by the fact that the United States had a policy of regime removal in place from the very beginning. The United States, a member of the Security Council who passed this resolution, went on record through their sec then Secretary of State James Baker in 1991 who said even if Iraq complies with its obligation under international law, or under, under international law to disarm, economic sanctions will never be lifted until which time Saddam Hussein is removed from power. So from the beginning, we didn't have just obstruction on the part of Iraq, but we had this inherent pollution of the process of investigation imposed by my own country, the United States of America which said that we don't care what the law says. We're going to hold Iraq accountable to a different standard, a standard that is unilateral in nature, which deviates from the rule of law. This complicated our process as well. Imagine me and other inspectors stand before the Iraqis and saying, you have to comply, you have to comply. And they said, why? We're damned if we do, damned if we don't. We're going to dive into a critical topic, the effectiveness of inspections and the role of military interventions in preserving national security. I'll be reacting to a 20-year-old video featuring Scott Ritter, a former United Nations weapons inspector, who was discussing the challenges and results of inspections in Iraq. Now the video opens with an interesting question. To what extent should the United States fear small quantities of chemical or biological agents? It's a valid concern, especially considering that we live in a world where terrorists and rogue states can gain access to these dangerous substances. The effectiveness of inspections is another crucial issue. Scott Ritter was involved in the inspection regime in Iraq back in 1998, and he admits that it was a challenging task, mainly due to Iraq's unwillingness to cooperate. Despite this, Ritter and his team managed to achieve a considerable degree of disarmament by 1996, accounting for 95% of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs. However, the law required 100% disarmament, leaving the inspection in a race against time to find the remaining unaccounted materials. Another set of concerns revolves around economic and political instruments. Programs such as non-Lugar aim to purchase and secure black market uranium and plutonium to limit access to fissile materials. While these programs might seem promising, they're often underfunded and neglected. Now let's discuss the administration's chosen instrument, preventive war and regime change. It's essential to analyze both the upsides and downsides of this military option. What are the risks to America? American troops, Israel, and the potential for terrorists to use small quantities of weapons. Ritter also mentions the new doctrine of preventive war, which he believes could set dangerous precedents for US foreign policy. Had the US acted on these principles towards China or India, for example, it could have led to even more devastating conflicts. Throughout the video, Scott Ritter emphasizes the importance of adhering to the rule of law, both domestically and internationally. He stresses that the Constitution of the United States and the United Nations Charter should guide our actions concerning Iraq and other countries. Ritter also highlights the inherent conflict in US policy towards Iraq. While the UN, 
resolutions focused on disarmament. The United States pursued a policy of regime change from the very beginning. This contradiction polluted the inspection process and ultimately undermined its effectiveness. It's crucial to approach these complex issues with a sense of balance and respect for the rule of law. Inspections, economic and political instruments, and military interventions all have their roles to play in ensuring national security, but it's up to us to use them responsibly and judiciously. The world we live in today is indeed a dangerous one, but as we continue to face new threats, we must remember the lessons of the past and strive to create a safer, more secure future for ourselves and the generations to come. As we continue to examine these complex issues, it's worth noting that the idea of inspections as a means to ensure compliance with international law has merit. Inspections can be an effective tool in verifying the disarmament of dangerous weapons programs, but they are not without their challenges. Inspectors face difficulties such as lack of cooperation from the host country, potential security threats, and the constant race to find unaccounted for materials. To improve the effectiveness of inspections, we must address these challenges and ensure that the inspection process is conducted in a transparent and unbiased manner, providing inspectors with the necessary resources and support, as well as fostering international cooperation, is vital to guarantee the success of these operations. The more countries that are involved in the inspection process, the more likely it is that the results will be seen as credible and reliable. In addition to inspections, we must continue to explore and invest in economic and political instruments that can help prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. This includes strengthening sanctions regimes, promoting diplomatic negotiations, and supporting programs that aim to secure and eliminate dangerous materials. While these measures may not be as immediately visible as military interventions, they are a crucial part of a comprehensive approach to ensuring global security. On the subject of military interventions and preventive war, it's essential to recognize that these actions carry significant risks and consequences. While they may be necessary in some situations, it's crucial to carefully weigh the potential benefits against the possible drawbacks. Engaging in preventive war without exhausting diplomatic and non-military options may lead to further instability, loss of life, and resentment from the international community. As we move forward, let us keep in mind the importance of adhering to the rule of law and respecting international norms. The United States, as a global leader, has a responsibility to set an example and encourage other nations to follow suit. By prioritizing diplomacy and cooperation, we can work together to address global security threats and create a safer world for all. The key to addressing these complex challenges lies in finding a balance between inspections, economic and political instruments, and military interventions. By considering each of these options and using them responsibly and judiciously, we can help to ensure a more secure and stable future for our nation and the world. As we learn from our past experiences, let us continue to strive for a more peaceful and cooperative global environment where nations can work together to overcome shared threats and challenges and encourage other nations to follow suit. By prioritizing diplomacy and cooperation, we can work together to address global security threats and create a safer world for all. The key to addressing these complex challenges lies in finding a balance between inspections, economic and political instruments, and military interventions. By considering each of these options and using them responsibly and judiciously, we can help to ensure a more secure and stable future for our nation and the world. As we learn from our past experiences, let us continue to strive for a more peaceful and cooperative global environment where nations can work together to overcome shared threats and challenges. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated.